You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we come now to your Word, and it is our desire in reading it and studying it and hearing it preached that we would grow in our appreciation not only of your Word, but also of our great God who is revealed in it. We pray that you would help us to see Christ and see Him clearly. We pray that you would show to us the the majesty of our Savior and the humility of our Savior and that we would be content to be like Him. We pray that your Word would have its way and work in the hearts and the minds of all those who bear the name of Christ and long to serve Him, that you would be glorified here through the preaching and teaching of your Word. That is our heart's cry, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. This is an easy way to find the Gospel of Luke. You hold your Bible like this, it'll fall open to the book of John, and then you just go back to the previous book. Which is exactly what my Bible just did. Luke chapter 2. We're going to read together this familiar passage. In fact, we're going to read the first 20 verses, though we're not going to be covering all 20 verses this morning, or we would be here till Christmas Eve, or till Christmas. We're just going to be reading verses 1 through 20 and then looking at a portion of this. Luke chapter 2. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Since we finished up John chapter 11 last week, I thought it would be a good opportunity to do something uh, for Christmas. And Not only is finishing a chapter in John an opportunity to take a break, but Christmas is a good opportunity to take a break as well. So we're going to take a section out of this passage, which we just read. We're going to be looking today at verses 8 through 14. 
Uh, these verses are probably familiar to many of us. You've heard them read uh, every year at our Christmas Eve service. We typically read this chapter, this passage from Luke. For our family, we sit down on Christmas morning and we read these verses before we open gifts. So we read these verses and we pray and then we give gifts and we talk a little bit about uh, gift giving and what the focus and priority of Christmas is. And we've been doing that, if memory serves me now, for probably close to 15 years. That is our family tradition. And a couple of weeks ago, we read this at the student ministry's Christmas party for the youth group. We had a Christmas party, we had a gift exchange, and we uh, read this passage. And there was something that kind of caught my attention, which I'm going to draw your attention to today. And it, it sort of stood out for me. And then for the next week, I was churning this over in my mind. And finally, I decided we should just take this passage for this morning. And we're going to take it this morning, and we're going to finish it up in our Christmas Eve service on Tuesday night. So we're going to look, be looking at part of this passage and then sort of concluding it on Tuesday evening. I don't know what it's like for you, but I can hardly read verses 8 through 14 about the shepherds without hearing the voice of Linus in my head. And I'm judging from your chuckling that many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The Charlie Brown Christmas special, where Charlie Brown asked me, what is, can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And then you can see that very, I watched it all the time when I was a kid, so I still see it in my mind's eye. A Linus standing in the middle of the stage holding his blanket, and he puts his blanket down next to his side, and then he recites, Luke chapter 8, verses, or 2, verses 8 through 14 from memory. And everybody is silent. And then he quietly walks over to the edge of the stage and stands in front of Charlie Brown and says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. And then walks off. There is something gloriously simple about this scene. Not the Charlie Brown scene. The scene in Luke. There's something gloriously simple about it. Uncluttered. Unfettered by details. It's plain. It's straightforward. It's just a straightforward accounting of the details, not a lot of details about the birth itself. And that, I think, is helpful for us at a time of year when things tend to become anything but plain and simple and uncomplicated and unbusy. There's something about Luke's account where it's just so plain and almost in a glorious way. So that's, I think, one of the values of looking at this passage, which we're going to do this morning. Before we just parachute in at verse 8, I don't, we don't want to do that without looking at the context as if the context doesn't matter. I'm going to give you sort of a brief accounting of chapter 1, just as if we were studying this uh, gospel and had been spending the last four or five years in the first and second chapter. Uh, I'm going to give you kind of an overview of this. Luke is sort of an interesting writer. In the first couple of chapters of his gospel, Luke has a pattern, and it's, it's almost like Luke is doing something intentionally with the pattern. Luke chapter 1 does not begin with an accounting of the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1 does not even begin with an accounting of the prophecy of the birth of Jesus to anybody. Luke begins his gospel by taking, by, by giving an account of the prophecy about somebody else's birth entirely. And it's not Jesus, it's John the Baptist. So Luke begins by t- talking about the prophecy of John the Baptist's birth, or the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth. Then Luke switches to the, to the announcement of the birth of Jesus to Mary and Joseph in chapter 1. And then there's some time when Elizabeth and Mary are together. Then Luke goes back to John the Baptist and gives us the account of John the Baptist's birth and all of the details surrounding that. Then, in Luke chapter 2, the account of the birth of Jesus. So, John the Baptist, the announcement of John the Baptist, the announcement of Jesus, the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. That's Luke's pattern. And he puts it side by side almost as if to compare and contrast not only the two births, but the announcements of those births and the, the details surrounding them. And we actually get a lot of details surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. In fact, far more details about his birth than we do actually of the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And I want to read it again for you. And I want you to notice something as we read through this. 
Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And we've read six verses, and we haven't heard anything about the birth, have we? Do you notice that the birth of Jesus is covered in only two verses? Verse 6, verse 7 and 8. Sorry, verse 6 and 7. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I said that's gloriously simple, and it is unfettered by details and unencumbered by details. The birth of Jesus is only covered in two verses. Little is said about that. Now, given the fact that Luke is recording, and Luke knows this, Luke is recording the birth of the most significant person who has ever lived. Luke knows that he is recording the birth of the man around whom all of history was written by the providential and sovereign hand of God. Luke knows that he is recording the birth of the the long-awaited Messiah, the hope of Israel, the consolation of the nation, the son of David, the coming king, the savior of the world. Luke understands all of that, and he records all of it in just two verses with very little detail. She gave birth, she wrapped him in clothes, she put him in a manger. Stunningly simple, isn't it? It's verse 8 through 14 where the real glory of this event becomes in a physical sense manifested. So we're going to study verses 8 through 14, and here's how we're going to break it up. We're going to look first of all at the presentation of the angels. This is the appearance of the angels to the shepherds in fields nearby. We're going to look at the presentation of the angels in verses 8 and 9. Then we're going to look in uh, verses 10, 11, and 12 at the proclamation of the angels. That is, that which they said to the shepherds. And then on Tuesday night, we're going to finish it up by looking at the praise of the angels in verses 13 and 14. So first of all, the presentation of the angels. In verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. We are struck instantly in verses 8 and 9 with a contrast of sorts, and I want you to notice it. What was going on back in Bethlehem when Jesus was born? Were there any visible manifestations of glory that was apparent to to Mary or yeah, to Mary and Joseph? Any visible manifestations of glory? As far as we know, it was a rather ordinary night. Uh, I don't know if it was a silent night, but it was an ordinary night. It's hard to imagine that it was silent with everybody arriving in town for the census. But it was an ordinary night, probably quiet, probably still. And the glory of that moment and the glory of that person was not readily noticeable, not visibly noticeable to anybody who was there. In fact, it would be safe to say that the significance of that event was known only to Mary and Joseph. Because they had received the announcement of the birth. They had received the promise of the angel. Joseph was told what to name the child. You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary and Joseph understood that Mary, having never had relations with a man, was pregnant, that this was a supernatural thing, that what was conceived in her was the promised Savior of the world, the promised child, the Messiah, and that it was he was virginally conceived, and virginally conceived, that's contradiction terms, conceived in a virgin without any relationship to a man. Mary and Joseph understood that, but nobody else around there would have known any of those details. It is safe to say that the glory of this moment is something that appeared not even in Bethlehem, not near Joseph and not near Mary, but to shepherds who were out in their fields watching over their flocks by night. That's where the physical manifestation of this glory came, was out to the shepherds who were, who were nearby, 
Mary and Joseph, no halo, no glory, no surrounding of angels, no trumpets, no heavenly announcement, no heavenly visitation, just plain and ordinary. In fact, this magnificent announcement of the shepherds is intended to be contrasted with the rather humble and unglorious picture going on in Bethlehem. The announcement to the shepherds is something that should strike us or would have struck a Jew as something unexpected and kind of unanticipated in a way, unlikely, but also something that was uh, very appropriate. Unlikely, but appropriate. And here's how it was unlikely. Shepherds in that culture were not known uh, for their st- uh, stellar reputation. Shepherds were kind of the lower class of society. They were not the upper crust of society. Shepherds were, by and large, for all intents and purposes, very ordinary men, unskilled, untaught men. Uh, they were not, uh, they didn't have a good reputation. In fact, in those days, some shepherds were not even allowed to testify in court because they were viewed sort of as very unsavory, uh, men that didn't really have any integrity, uh, untrustworthy, unfaithful. That was kind of the reputation that being a shepherd had taken on in that culture. And because the shepherds had to care for their sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sheep always had to be cared for, the shepherds were unable to keep all of the man-made laws that the Pharisees had attached to the Sabbath. So in the eyes of a Pharisee or the religious elite, shepherds were never really uh, never really ceremonially clean because they were always in violation of the Sabbath law because they had to take care of the sheep on the Sabbath. And you remember all of the man-made traditions that they attached to the Sabbath? Shepherds could never observe the Sabbath in a way that was acceptable to the Pharisees. So in the eyes of society and the culture and the religious leaders of the nation of Israel, shepherds were always unclean. In the eyes of a, of a religious leader, shepherds were always unfit and unacceptable to God because they were ceremonially unclean. So you didn't want to hang around with those. Those were the bottom of the barrel, socially speaking. Men who were not even considered reliable witnesses in a court of law. So it is very unlikely and seemingly inappropriate in that sense for God to choose those men to be the witnesses of such a significant announcement. Men who could not even be allowed to testify in court are made the witnesses of this angelic announcement and visitation. But in another sense, it seems as if it is a very appropriate way to announce the birth of Christ. Moses, the lawgiver of Israel, had been a shepherd. David had been a shepherd. And David, of course, was born in Bethlehem. Uh, David was known as a, as a great shepherd for the nation of Israel, a shepherd of the nation of Israel. And even God refers to himself as a shepherd of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And of course, in John chapter 10, Jesus is the great shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Jesus himself is the shepherd of the sheep. So in that sense, it seems entirely appropriate that the announcement of the birth of the great shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep who would lay down his life for the sheep, should be made to whom? To shepherds. That seems entirely appropriate. According to John MacArthur in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, there is a rabbinic law that stated that any sheep kept in and around the environs of Jerusalem and anywhere between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, that those sheep were destined for the slaughter. Those were sheep that were raised and used for sacrifices in the temple. So knowing that Jesus not only is the great shepherd of the sheep and that he is the good shepherd, but also that he is the Passover lamb who would give his life for the sheep, then it seems entirely appropriate that the announcement of the birth of that great shepherd of the sheep and the sacrifice for the sheep would be made to shepherds who are shepherding sheep for sacrifice. So that seems entirely appropriate, doesn't it? So these shepherds in verses 9, 8, and 9, that's not what we might expect, but it does seem very appropriate. And then look at the the invasion of the glory of God into this very seemingly mundane event. Verse 9, An angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. So you can make you can picture this picture. They are out in their 
shields, keeping watch over their flocks. It is nighttime. And we know from John 10 what shepherds did at night with their sheep. What did they do? They put them all into a pen, a communal pen, brought them all together and closed them in. And then they would keep them in that location, would keep them safe from predators and safe from thieves and robbers who would want to steal those sheep. And then they would have a couple of shepherds who would stay up all night tending the sheep and watching over them. That's what's going on. So you might imagine these shepherds are sitting out in their fields. It's dark. There's no city lights nearby that would make this a a light night or a bright night. So they are out in the countryside, and it is dark, and it is quiet. It is probably cold or cool at night at least, depending on what time of the year this was. And these shepherds are all sitting around a fire. Some of them may be playing their, whatever they played, their harps or whatever shepherds played, and they would be talking about probably sheep or what went on during the day. And then suddenly there is an appearance of the angel of God to these shepherds out in their fields. And not only was there an appearance of the angel, which would be terrifying enough, but there was the appearance of the angel with the glory of God. What did those men see that terrified them? It was the glory of God. They saw the glory of God which shone around them and the appearance of this angel. And Luke says they were terribly frightened. They were sore afraid, as the King James says. They were. They came apart and they came undone. The glory of God, and the simple definition of the glory of God would be the glory of God is the visible manifestation of God's presence. God's glory is the sum total of all of His attributes. So you take all of God's justice, His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness, His kindness, His omniscience, all of the things, the communicable and the incommunicable attributes of God, you put all of those together, and what you have when you put all of the attributes of God together is the effulgence of His glory. And Scripture speaks of God dwelling in light and manifesting Himself in light and the brilliance and the brightness of that light is what is often uh, used to describe the, the, the character of what people see when they see the glory of God. It is a bright light. It is an incomprehensible light. It is a piercing light. It is the, the, the glow and glimmer and the shining of the noonday sun pale in comparison to the brightness of God's glory. Scripture describes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 15 and 16, said, God is the blessed and only Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. It is a glorious picture of God. So in Scripture, when people see the glory of God, what they see is this bright, brilliant light. And that is what they saw. Now, ironically, the glory of God was not just in appearance to the shepherds out in the field, but the glory of God was made manifest in another location, and it was in Bethlehem. Because it is appropriate to say that not only is God the Father, the, which is the effulgence, the essence of God, the, the, the brilliance of that light. But in Christ, Scripture says, we behold the glory of God. And this is what caught my attention as I was reading through Luke 2 a couple of weeks ago. In Christ, we behold the glory of God. John says in John chapter 1, verse 14, when the Word was made flesh, we beheld, we saw His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here is what was interesting to me. You have in Bethlehem one manifestation of the glory of God. You could look at the Christ child, you could see Jesus, and you would be seeing the glory of God. Were people terrified? They weren't terrified. But you could also be out in the fields with those shepherds and you would see the glory of God, and they were terrified. The shepherds were terrified, and those surrounding the birth of Christ were not terrified by the same glory. Why is that? Because the glory of God was veiled in flesh. The Godhead seed. We saw the, the Godhead veiled in flesh in the person of Christ. God has manifested and demonstrated His glory to us. We behold His glory and we see His glory. And we see His glory in a way that does not terrify us in the person of His Son. God has made His glory manifest in the flesh. 
in the person of Christ, and it does not terrify us. But these shepherds saw the glory of Christ, and they were terrified. They were terrified. Look at their response. They were so terrified that the angels in verse 11, verse 10, had to say to them, do not be afraid. They were terribly frightened. Now, what is it about the glory of God that when seen frightens men? Because that is the common, ordinary response to seeing the glory of God in Scripture. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, what did he do? Scripture says he came undone. Undone. His knees knocked together. Isaiah fell. John fell. Daniel fell. Ezekiel came undone. These men, when they saw the glory of God made manifest, they came undone and they were terrified. That is the natural response of fallen men to the glory of God. Why is that? Because when men behold the glory of God, they are made acutely aware of their sin. That is why Peter, when he saw the glory of God, said, Depart from me, I am a sinful man. That is why Isaiah would declare, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I am unholy and unrighteous and undone. When you and I live among people who are sinners, and all that we are familiar with is sinners, and everything that we see is sinful and affected by the curse, to get a glimpse at the pure righteousness and the pure holiness of God, that would be terrifying to say the least. Because suddenly you would realize how frail and sinful and iniquitous and how much of a transgressor you are and how weak you actually are. To see that glory, these men came unglued. How much of God's glory did they see? All of it? They couldn't have seen all of it, right? Because God says, no man shall see me and live. If those shepherds had seen all of God's glory, they would have just disintegrated. How much of God's glory did they see? As much as they could handle. And no more. What percentage of God's glory is that? I don't know what percentage of that. I don't think it's much. I don't think it takes much of a revelation of God's glory to make sinful men fall apart at the seams. I don't think it takes much of His glory at all. He is infinite in glory. He is infinite in His beauty. Sometimes we sing these songs... I want to see your glory. Show me your glory. You do not want to see the glory of God. Now, I kind of understand where the songs are going with that. You know, we want to see, you know, let's see God magnified. We want to see God's name glorified. I understand kind of the sentiment behind that. But listen, any God whose glory you could tolerate seeing is not worthy of your worship. He's no God at all. It is a mercy of God toward us that He hides His glory from us. That is His mercy to us. We ought not beg to see something that would mean our complete ruin. You want to die before you see the glory of God. Because then you will be able to take it. You will be perfected. You will be glorious. You will be holy. You will be able to take it in. But until you die, it is His mercy to shield you from that glory and to hide Himself, which He does. That is what He did in the person of Christ. That is why Christ, the glory that John beheld, full of grace and truth, did not terrify men. Because He veiled it in flesh. So we're able to look on Christ, and Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are able to look on Him and see the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of the nature and the character and the person of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and not be terrified by it. Because God in His mercy veils His glory to us and does not show it to us. All right, that's the presentation of the angels. Now look at the proclamation that they make, beginning in verse 10. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The very first thing that the angels had to say to these men, these shepherds, is do not be afraid. This, I think, is an indication that these shepherds were probably righteous and devout men. Um, 
you and I should have a healthy fear of God. They were afraid because what they saw was an invasion into their world, into their realm, something that they had never in even the slightest degree had been exposed to up until that point. So they were terrified because of what they were seeing was a supernatural, angelic uh, invasion of the glory of God revealed to them. So they were afraid. You and I should be afraid of God. We should have a fear of God that is a healthy fear. Uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. As devout people, we don't fear God in the sense that we are terrified to meet Him or terrified of Him. Because as those who have been redeemed, as the righteous who are in Christ, we do not fear the judgment of God. And that's what these shepherds are assured of. We are not here to announce a judgment. Do not fear We bring you good news of great joy. We bring you good news, not terrifying news. And so they are told to not fear, to to calm down. We bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And the shepherds would have understood the all the people to be a reference to their nation, to the nation of Israel. They are announcing, the angel is announcing, the arrival and the birth of the long-awaited Messiah that the nation had been anticipating and waiting for and wanting and expecting and believing in. And now he is being announced. And so the shepherds would have understood the all the people to refer just to the nation of Israel. But we find out from Luke chapter 2 and uh, the birth of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 that though the, uh, the birth is announced to the nation of Israel and though it is for the nation of Israel, it is not just for the nation of Israel. It's to all the people. There is a worldwide redemptive plan and scope of God which we've been looking at in John 11 and we'll see again in John 12, a worldwide redemptive element in the plan of God where the Gentiles are included into this. This one who was born is not just for the Jews, but he is actually a light to the Gentiles as well. And it is good news of great joy to all the people. And then the angel says, for today, that's the time, in the city of David, that's the place, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is a threefold description of this baby child given there in that verse. He is a Savior, he is Christ, and he is Lord. I want you to look briefly at those three terms. The first one is Savior. That is appropriate because we understand Jesus Christ as a Savior. The angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, you will name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Ultimately, the need that we had was not to see a good teacher or a nice rabbi or a a leader. We didn't need that in Christ. What we needed and God sent for us was a Savior, somebody to forgive us of our sins. Because we are sinners, this is God's provision, a Savior. I am a liar. I am a thief. I am a blasphemer. I have rightly heaped up for myself a mountain of guilt before the wrath of God. And if God were to give me what I deserve, He would give me justice and He would send me to hell for all of eternity. And that is the case with every single individual who has been born into this world and lived a life. We heap up for ourselves wrath upon wrath, waiting for the righteous revelation of the judgment of God. That is what we deserve. And so man's greatest need was to be saved or delivered from that wrath, to be saved and delivered from that sin. And that is what God has provided in the person of Christ. Born unto you, for you, good news, great joy, a Savior. If these shepherds were devout men, then this is exactly what they knew they needed. This is exactly what they knew they wanted. This they knew was going to meet their need and deliver them from their sin. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. It surprises me, and you'll notice this as you go through the Christmas season, It surprises me how many people will celebrate the birth of Christ who have no relationship with Him as Savior. It always strikes me as odd. People celebrate His birth. They send cards announcing the birth of the Savior. Even with the word Savior on the outside and the inside of the card, 
They sing songs that describe the birth of the Savior and the work of the Savior. Songs like we sang at the beginning of our service. They sing all of this. They go through all of this. And they have no relationship to Him as Savior. They've never repented of their sins and trusted Christ for salvation. And all they know of Him is as judge. He is their judge. He is not their Savior because He has not saved them from their sins. So if you want to honor Jesus Christ as your uh, in the Christmas season, the best way and the only way to do that is to respond to Him as Savior and to know Him as Savior. He is given to us as Savior. Second, as Christ, as Christ. That term refers to His office. Uh, the word Christ is the Old Testament equivalent as Messiah. It speaks of somebody who had an elevated or anointed office, somebody high and lifted up. This is a very exalted title that is given to Jesus here. And the third one is Lord. And that's the word kurios. And that means, means Lord. When you call Jesus Lord, you are acknowledging His uh, authority over you and your subservience in every way as a bond slave to Him. And when it's used in the New Testament, it doesn't always mean God, but in reference to Christ, when it is used of Jesus, especially in the context like this, where He has the term Christ and Savior, it's describing His deity. So Savior is His work on the cross. Christ is His office and His exalted position. And then Lord describes His nature. That he is the savior for sins. He is the high and exalted one, the Messiah. That is his office. Uh, he is the name which is above every name. And then also he is the Lord. He is God in human flesh. Such an exalted title. Now look at what the angel says next in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Now there is another intended contrast between verse 11 and verse 12. I want you to picture this just again so you can kind of see this contrast. An angel has appeared... And he has split the darkness of that night. They have seen the glory of God. They are they have come undone. They have had an angelic messenger announce to them the birth of one with the three most exalted titles that anybody could give a human being. Savior, Christ, and Lord. Where might they expect to find such a baby? Would they find him descending out of heaven in a flaming chariot like the one that had taken Elijah up to heaven? Would they find him descending from a throne on a gold throne somewhere in Bethlehem, seated on a throne that had just dropped right out of heaven? Would they find him on a nice bed with cushy mattresses and pillows tucked around him? Would they find him in a royal palace surrounded by attendants? Would they even find him someplace in Bethlehem surrounded by angelic hosts? who are guarding and defending and caring for him and meeting his every need and attending to him. None of that. Where would they find him? Wrapped in clothes and lying in a feed trough. Really? Do you notice the contrast between that? How stark that is? Where might they expect to find him? In a palace. Where would they find him? In a manger. And this is the sign. By this you will know which baby it is that the angels are describing in Bethlehem. You're going to go into Bethlehem. You're going to look for this baby. You're just going to look for any baby. Dozens of babies. I don't know how many babies there would have been in Bethlehem, but probably more than one. But this is how you will know which baby is which. You're going to find him wrapped in clothes. There's nothing significant or extraordinary about that. That's rather ordinary. You always wrap babies in clothes. If you didn't, they would freeze to death, especially in an environment like that. So there's nothing extraordinary about that. What is extraordinary is that you would find him lying in a manger. That's the extraordinary nature of this birth. And this is that contrast, that stark comparison between his exalted status and title and the circumstances in which the shepherds would find him. That is intended to highlight for us the utter condescension that Christ experienced in coming from heaven to this earth. Now listen, 
If the Lord Jesus, who is worthy of being worshipped by myriads upon myriads of angels, and he deserves that worship, and he enjoyed the, the benefits and the blessings and the privileges and the power and the glory of heaven and the worship of angels for all of eternity past, and, and uninterrupted fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit, that individual, if he had if he had come into this world and he had been born into a royal family and he had been born in a palace and he had been constantly awaited on and attended by angels of every sort hovering around him constantly and worshiping him constantly, if those had been his circumstances, that type of condescension from heaven to the most affluent treatment ever given to a king would be an infinite condescension. That would be infinite. But those were not the circumstances that he was born into. Born into a poor family, in a very nondescript town, to two very ordinary parents who were unknown, and is wrapped in clothes and laid in a manger. You want to learn something from Christmas? Learn humility from Christmas. This is why Paul can say, Paul could say, we don't look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we have this mind, this attitude, in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who though although he existed in the form that is in very nature God, in the essence God, Though he existed in that form, he did not consider his equality with God something to be held onto at all costs and used for his own benefit and his own power and his own glory. He did not consider his equality with God something to be seized, to be kept. But instead, he humbled himself, he condescended and he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the independent use of his attributes, of his glory and all the privilege and everything that went with heaven. And he stepped down here and he was made in appearance as a man and he humbled himself and came in the form of a bondservant. And that's not the only humility that he experienced. He humiliated himself and humbled himself even further to death on a cross. So when you look at Jesus Christ and you look at the, the titles that are given here in Luke chapter 2 and the utter condescension to be born in this way into those circumstances in that situation, be laid in a manger, can you really ever find yourself saying to yourself or to anybody else, you know what, I deserve better than that. I have a right to better than that. This is below me. That is below me. I am above that. Can any Christian, any follower of Christ honestly ever say that? We can't. This is the greatest example of humiliation and condescension and service and humility that could ever be given by anybody. He is the ultimate example of humility. Because his drop from the glory of God and the presence of angels and the worship of angels to being born in this way into this earth to die for wretched sinners like you and me, that type of condescension is utterly unheard of. That's what we learn from Christmas. It is a lesson in humility and in humiliation and in service and in sacrifice. And so we say with the song that we often sing, Oh, what a mystery, meekness and majesty, bow down and worship, for this is your God. That's the presentation of the angels and the proclamation of the angels. And then, Lord willing, on Tuesday night, we will look at the praise of the angels in verses 13 and 14 and what we learn from that. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father, we are so thankful to you that in Christ you, you have atoned for and paid for our sins. We, we are wretched sinners, and if we had seen even a fraction of your glory as these shepherds did, even being righteous, we would be consumed by that glory. And they had a right to be terrified, and we have a right to fear you and stand in reverence and awe before you and to love you and to, to give you our, our love and our adoration. Such an example as what Christ has done here is far beyond what we could ever do. Even if we humiliated ourselves to the, the lowest degree possible, we could never match the example of what you have done in Christ. Thank you for loving us, your people, those whom you loved and chose, those whom you have drawn to yourself. We thank you for that love. 
We thank you that having loved us, you sent your son to pay the price for our sin. And I pray, Father, that there might be nobody here this morning who celebrates Christmas, ignorant of a relationship with Christ as Savior. May you draw us and all who are here into deeper and more intimate fellowship with yourself. Give us a love for one another, love for your word, and love for Christ. And draw those who do not know you to the Savior, that they might experience the grace of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and righteousness in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.